0: Chapter 5. A History. From Viking Power to Soviet State. Sergei, an 18-year-old democracy activist, tells me that he's from Kharkiv, apologizes for his poor English, and explains that I am the first foreigner he has ever spoken to. When I meet him on a hot day in Krivirich, he's wearing a white top bearing two flags, the Ukrainian and the Swedish. Above them reads the name of the Cossack hero, Mazeppa. The top? Well, Mazeppa and Karl XII fought the Russian Tsar together. Sweden was on our side. They lost, but in spite of that, Mazeppa is still a symbol of freedom. Or maybe because of it. I'm not sure, but I, I like Mazeppa. He says with a somewhat hasty, apologetic tone in his smile. In Ukraine's search for a distinct identity after independence in 1991, Ivan Mazepa has been something of a central figure. For the Swedish king to be intimately tied to the country's foremost heroic icon is a bit flattering. However, Sweden's associations with the country go much further back than the brief alliance that ended with the Swedish fiasco in Poltava 1709. According to early monastic manuscripts, it was Vikings from Scandinavia who formed Ukrainian nationality in its first 10th century efflorescence. Previously, nomadic tribes populated the steppes, forests, and fens. Goths, Mongols, Drevlians, Khazars, and Scythians. Greek seafarers built communities on the shores of the Black Sea. By the 600s, Slavic tribes had settled in parts of Ukraine. Kiev is said to have been named after Kyi, one of three powerful brothers from a tribe that populated the area at this time. But there was considerable disunity, and the various peoples were often at loggerheads. According to the primary chronicle, The Tale of Bygone Years, written by 12th-century monks in Kiev's Pechersk Lavra Monastery, The mutually belligerent clans had grown tired of war by the 800s and were in dire need of peace and the rule of law. The tribes agreed to seek a ruler from the outside and appealed to the Norsemen, who regularly sailed from Scandinavia along the Dnieper towards the Black Sea and Constantinople. These warrior traders were called Vikings in Western Europe, but were on the eastern shores of the Baltic known as rowing men. Ruotsi due to their typical means of travel in longboats. In Kiev, the name evolved as Rus, or Ruses. When the ice thawed each spring, they would head south with cargoes of pelts, wax, slaves, and honey, the long journeys made possible by a sophisticated logistics and organizational system well ahead of its time. The primary chronicle tells us that it was one of three brothers from the tribe of the Swedes, Chieftain Rurik from Roslagen, who was chosen to govern Kiev by the House Karls in Novgorod in the north in modern Russia. In around 870, Rurik appointed as local ruler one Askold, who is normally referred to as the first Viking prince of Kiev. His grave nowadays has pride of place in the centre of the town that the Norsemen once called Schoenegard. The river channel around Kiev is surrounded by islands, tributaries and hills that rise majestically along the banks of the Dnieper. It is easy to conceive of a one-time environment that welcomed settlement, industry, cultivation, hunting and transport. An economic hub arose here, surrounded by the Kingdom of Kievan Rus', Kiev Rus', which would subsequently be described as the cradle of all East Slavic people. Kievan Rus' would also eventually lend its name to Russia, the land of the Rus' in the north. Moscow is Russia's heart, St. Petersburg its head, Kiev its mother, and Novgorod its father, as the Russian saying goes. According to some historians, the primary chronicle overstates the community-building role of the Scandinavians. Anna Reid argues, for example, that the influence of the Norsemen was more about an organic emergence fed by commercial logic. They did not set themselves up primarily as rulers, but as dominant operators at a key trading site along the river. The trade organisation eventually becoming a political organisation. Trading posts turned into forts, forts into tribute collection points, and the tribute collection points, at the end of the 10th century, into the largest kingdom in Europe. Historian Dick Harrison, for his part, maintains that during the Schönegard era, there was no strict differentiation between Swede or Rus'. The Ruses had a disparate ethnic and geographical origin, and more than anything else, developed into a dominant elite of warriors and merchants. Svenska Dagbladet, 13th of August 2016. It should also be kept in mind that it was possibly in the interests of the Primary Chronicle, which was written down in the 12th century to emphasize the Nordic roots of the Kievan Rus'. distance themselves from the semi-nomadic Khazars, who dominated eastern Ukraine and Kiev in the 8th and 9th centuries, and who also demanded tribute from the Slavic tribes. But what was it about the Norsemen that gave them such status in Kievan Rus? One explanation might be found in the East Slavic word Vayug, another name for these northerners, a derivative, it is said, of the word oath-sworn. To swear an oath of fidelity to a group outside the family extends loyalty to a more formally composed collective. It is possible that the rowing men developed the habit of subjugating a larger organisation during their trading voyages with rules and methods that also proved applicable to more settled communities. Or maybe it was simply the steady flow of goods and people along the trade route in which Schönegaard fostered an organization that benefited trade, mutual benefits, and prosperity. When the rule of law was established, Kievan Rus flourished to become Europe's largest and most powerful state during the 10th century, encompassing as it did Ukraine, Belarus, and western Russia up to central Finland. The Norsemen's names were soon slavicized. Valdemar became Volodymyr, Ingvar became Ihor, Helga became Olga. St. Olga, who now stands as a statue in central Kiev, was one of a handful of leading women to earn a place in early Ukrainian history. Of Viking birth, she was married to Ihor, ruler of Kiev. In the 10th century, Kievan Rus had a complex relationship with the Drevlians, who were based in the forested regions west of the city. They had fought with the Kievan Rus against the East Byzantines, but had then killed Ihor, after which they sought to unite the tribes through marriage with his widow. Olga received the group of envoys who delivered the message, only to promptly have them tossed into a pit and buried alive. She then sent out word north that she accepted marriage to the Drevlian prince, but on condition that they send a worthy assembly of leaders to escort her on her journey. When a group of eminent Drevlians arrived, Olga ordered them to bathe themselves thoroughly before they could partake in the welcome meal. Once the men had entered the bathhouse, it was locked from the outside and burned down. Kievan Rus' troops then rode to the Drevlian town of Korosten, where Olga, after weeping at her husband's grave, ordered them to dispatch the men of the tribe in a shock slaughter after nightfall. Olga fortified the kingdom and at some time in the mid-900s converted to Christianity, making her the first Christian leader of Kievan Rus. Rurik's descendants became an ethnically mixed elite in Kievan Rus. However, the link between Scandinavia and the rulers of Novgorod and Kiev was still alive even into the 1000s. Olga's grandson, Volodymyr, Valdemar or Vladimir, ruled Kiev from Novgorod in the 970s. After receiving word that his brothers in Kiev had murdered a third brother and were now threatening him too, he fled to Scandinavia. A few years later, in 980, he returned with Vikings from the de facto Norwegian ruler Hakon Sigurdsson to seize power in Novgorod, followed by the Kingdom of Kiev, which subsequently flourished under his rule. A new wave of Vikings travelled southward, this time not as traders but as warriors to fortify a sizable kingdom. In the fifteen years that followed, enemies were subjugated at all points of the compass. Khazars, Bulgars and Pechenegs in the south and Polans and Drevlians in the west-northwest. Outside Volodymyr's castle stood wooden sculptures of Slavic divinities with wonderful Tolkien-esque names. Perun, Dajbog, Strybog, Simargl and Mogosh. But the age demanded a modern, unifying religion. Volodymyr opted for Greek Orthodox Christianity, the religion observed by the most influential power of the time, Byzantium. In 988, Volodymyr ordered the statue of the thunder god Perun to be dragged down to the river and beaten with sticks. The castigation was duly meted out and was followed by a mass baptism in which the people were inducted into the Christian faith. Volodymyr the Great, as he came to be called, ruled for a full thirty-five years as Kievan Rus grew into a major power. During this epoch, its northern ties became gradually threadbare, much to the benefit of the European mainland. A victory in the west against the Yatvingians, a Baltic tribe living in modern-day Lithuania, also gave Kievan Rus access to the Baltic Sea. Volodymyr's son was Prince Yaroslav the Wise, during whose reign in the early 11th century the Ruskia Pravda, the Rus's justice, was established, being the legal code upon which legislation in both Kievan Rus and Russia was ultimately based. The Code established feudal relations and serf rights, property ownership, and penalties for a wide range of crimes. It also limited the rights of blood vengeance so that it only applied to the perpetrator and his immediate family. The fact that Russian justice has its roots in Kievan Rus' is one of the main reasons why Russia sees Ukraine as a, let's say, organic homeland. If Volodymyr's reign had been the age of conquests, Yaroslav's was an age of establishment and the formalization of the kingdom's power and rules. In 1037, Yaroslav built the Sofia Cathedral in Kiev, the cardinal monument to its golden age. The cathedral is still a symbolic center of the city, even if its facade has been replaced by the architectural aesthetics of later times. Yaroslav's death heralded the dissolution of the Kingdom of Kievan Rus. Local princes established thrones in its various regions, trade routes shifted westward, and Kiev increasingly became a medieval periphery basing its power in other larger kingdoms. At the turn of the 1200s, the Kingdom of galicia Volinia, based in Poland, Slovakia, and Ukraine, stepped in as the new lords of Kiev. However, the definitive death blow to Kievan Rus came in the middle of the 1200s as Genghis Khan's grandson Batu Khan swept westwards with his Mongolian hordes and in 1240 laid siege to Kiev from the Batyeva hill to its west. At the end of November, the Mongols advanced and set up catapults, which spent a week punching holes in the city's bulwarks. The ensuing butchery of the city's 50,000 denizens left a mere 2,000 souls alive. The city was plundered, almost all of its 400 churches were burned to the ground, and when the Mongols moved on, Kievan Rus was left to its fate as a languishing backwoods. The Dnieper had lost its key role as the primary transportation route, and Kiev's status as a religious center was transferred from its Lavra monastic complex to Moscow. Some historians hold that the Mongolian migration to the north, and their more settled existence there, is one reason for enduring differences in the Russian and Ukrainian view of governance. By the time the Mongol Empire collapsed in the 1500s, its despotic methods of exercising power had taken root in Russia. Ukraine, on the other hand, as Anna Reid and Richard Pipes observe, had been more influenced by the new rulers approaching from Western Europe. In Moscow, the notion of legitimate autocracy was cemented into permanency. Moreover, in Kievan Rus, ecclesiastical and political power were kept separate in a way that was alien to the north. The 1300s saw the eastward expansion of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Kiev was absorbed in 1362, but the Lithuanians had neither the military strength nor the ambition to completely colonize and convert its new territories. So it left the peoples on the fringes free to select their own mayors and judges. Western Ukraine, Galicia and Volhynia ended up belonging to Poland which also enjoyed long-lasting influence there. For example, Polish nobility rights were conferred on Kievan Rus' lords, even though they were to retain their own ethnic distinctiveness. The Russian or Ukrainian identity that existed during these centuries was not primarily based on language, but on the Orthodox faith, as distinct from Polish Catholicism. At the end of the 1300s, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth was established as a combined force against Germanic tribes and Mongols. Polish feudal lords expanded eastward, and from the 1500s onwards, villainage gradually became the norm. As their estates grew, the Polish nobility found themselves increasingly unable to exercise control over their land, so they engaged Jews to lease and manage its cultivation. During periods of discontent, these Jewish subtenants would then be regarded by the local peasantry as symbols of their oppression. In the history of the birth of the Ruthenian or Ukrainian identity, a special chapter is reserved for the Zaporozhian Cossacks. In Ukraine's pursuit of distinctiveness, the Cossacks have been depicted as legendary mounted rebels from the steppes. Their communities initially emerged as a libertarian way of life amongst groups that from the end of the 15th century settled along the rivers. Some sources claim that they were, at least originally, Tatar mercenaries, Kazakhs, who interbred with local peoples. According to more recent historiography, they principally comprised people who were pushed eastward by the expanding estates as they fled Polish-Lithuanian serfdom. Whatever the truth of the matter, they originally represented more of a lifestyle than a people. With time, the Cossack communities were formalised and placed under the control of a military leader called a hetman. To defend themselves, often against raids by the Crimean Khanate, the Cossacks built timber forts called sich, a word that was eventually used to denote the Cossack capital. From the 1500s to the 1700s, a political entity emerged in the areas around the Dnieper. The river people were eventually given rules on how ownership decisions were taken, and a kind of parliament was established to select their leaders. But a modern state with borders and a constitution it was not, nor was there any distinction between political and military rule. The Cossack State was a balancing force between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Tsarist Russia, and the Crimean Khanate. While under the subjugation of Poland, a desire for autonomy and power grew within the Cossack State. Then at the end of the 1500s, the Cossacks revolted against the Poles no fewer than seven times. The Great Uprising, the last of the revolts, was a huge success. Leading the rebellion was Bogdan Khmelnytsky who, alongside Mazeppa, would earn posterity's recognition as the most cherished of the Cossack leaders. Kemalnytsky was born at the end of the 1500s, was schooled by the Jesuits, served in the Polish army, and spent two years as a prisoner of war in Turkey. For a quarter of a century, he lived in central Ukraine, living off his family farm as he rose up the ranks of the Cossacks, who were loyal to the Polish crown. However, everything changed after a feud with a neighbour involving both property and family, which resulted in physical attacks and ended with the family being evicted from their estate. After his attempts to seek redress with the help of the authorities in Warsaw met with no success, Kemelnitsky fled to Sitch, the capital of the Free Cossacks. In due course, he was elected Hetman, and managed to persuade the Cossacks and even the leader of the Tatars, the Crimean Khan, to ally with him in an attack on Poland. The support from Khan Islam III Girai was decisive, since the Tatars had a large cavalry, which the Cossacks, contrary to popular belief, lacked. Another key to the power of their force was that he managed to entice other Cossack troops, who were otherwise loyal to Poland, to join his campaign. In 1648, Melnitsky's troops wrought the most havoc, notching up a succession of spectacular victories, first against the Cossacks fighting under the Polish crown, and then in May, against Poland's own army in Corson. The great uprising raged over vast expanses and became an act of mass peasant vengeance. Whenever and wherever a Polish noble or official, Catholic priest or Jew was found, he was summarily dispatched a fate that even women and children might not be spared. By way of cautionary act, the armies would torture more important enemies to death by impalement, whereby the body was thrust onto a wooden stake and left to bleed to death. While some of the peasant's wrath was directed at the large estate owners, more was reserved for the Jews, this middle stratum of urban power-holders. In the summer of 1648 alone, upwards of 20,000 Jews were killed. Following the successful uprising, Kimilnitsky signed a treaty with the Polish king so that in 1649 he could ride into Kiev as a hero. The Cossacks received three areas that had once belonged to Poland, and Khmelnytsky became hetman of a state covering western and eastern Ukraine. But the state was a fragile edifice. The Tatars soon tired of the Cossacks and their shifty position between the Russians and Poles, and saw to it that Cossacks and Poles wore each other out in a succession of battles. In 1651, the alliance with the Tatars collapsed, and with it, the Cossack state's sense of direction and effectiveness. When the Poles mustered to march back on the east, Khmelnytsky turned to Russia pledging allegiance to the Tsar in Pereyaslav in 1654 and placing the Cossack state under his protection. The Hetman himself died three years later. A time of disorder followed as a three-way tug-of-war surged back and forth between Tatars, Muscovites and Poles in various constellations. In 1664, following a war between Russia and Poland, the great powers agreed to divide up Ukraine between them. It is sometimes said that Ukrainians find it hard to decide what historical role to ascribe to Kamilnitsky, whose statue currently graces the plaza outside Sofia Cathedral in Kiev. For Ukrainians, he is, above all, the champion of the early nation, the incarnation of a national golden age, and an all-out war of liberation against those who sought to rule over them. On the other hand, there would be no social rising for the oppressed, at least not for the country's bondsmen who were marched with Kimolnitsky's blessing to the slave markets in the south to be auctioned off. For the Russians, Kimolnitsky is responsible for driving the Cossack state into the Tsar's warm embrace for the Jews, and many contemporary European school chroniclers, he is a blood-stained nationalist and one of many orchestrators of Ukrainian movements that ended in pogroms. Whatever his perceived legacy, the Hetman was skilled at negotiating with different actors in the interest of bolstering his state. Bogdan Kamelnitsky was the foremost juggler of realpolitik, his insight that the greatness of the Cossack Kingdom required alliances with great powers, intrigues, and strategic pacts, making him something of a role model for Mazeppa. On account of its location, Crimea, being a peninsula jutting into the Black Sea, followed a different demographic and historical path from the rest of Ukraine. Early in its history, there were Greek colonies along its southern coast, And then, during different waves of Turkish expansion, groups of Muslim settlers as well as Jews arrived, who migrated to the peninsula during a few centuries of the Common Era. In the late 1400s, the Muslim Crimean Tatars established an autonomous region, partly in allegiance to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but also with the support of the Ottoman Empire. Over the following two centuries, Crimea, with its strategic harbors, expanded to become one of Southeast Europe's most important states. But, like the rest of Ukraine, it would end up being a pawn in the struggles between competing powers. The Crimean War in the 1850s was a major European conflict, a dress rehearsal of sorts for the world wars of the next century. Taking advantage of its sick condition, Russia attacked the Ottoman Empire in 1853. Unable to tolerate the sight of Russian expansion, especially its now stronger position as a major marine power, France and Britain retaliated. Russia lost the war, yet clung on to the peninsula. According to historian Peter Johnson, Crimea is the part of Ukraine the least associated with the rest of the country's history yet neither is it the history of Poland, Lithuania, Turkey or Russia. In the 18th century and onwards, Crimea was colonized by Russians, who came to dominate its demographic profile and shape its identity. After Ukrainian independence in 1991, the peninsula's pro-Russian leaders protested, and an agreement was reached for it to become an independent Ukrainian republic. During the 1600s, Russia and Poland had each laid claim to its own part of Ukraine. Russia was the first to reposition itself in eastern Ukraine and then a century later in the west. After the Battle of Poltava in 1709, Russia emerged as the victor in eastern Europe and the Cossack Hetmanate was dissolved. The lack of mass opposition from the Cossacks was largely due to the way Catherine the Great had Russian aristocratic privileges extended to Cossacks and other landowners who had once been part of Poland. Over 30,000 Cossacks around the Dnieper and their estates were given protection, freedom from taxation, and full right to their bondsmen. Catherine II formally annexed the areas in 1783, and her lover, The extravagant Field Marshal Grigory Potemkin led the colonization of the steppes in the south through the rapid establishment of towns and the erection of grand buildings. The fact that Potemkin's building project was largely a decorative facade to impress Catherine the Great on her triumphal progress in the south gave rise to the term Potemkin Village. It is a moot point among scholars just how fair this scurrilous term is, because the colonization, with its new builds, was all too real in southern Ukraine. On the Moscow-Crimea road, however, buildings had been hastily erected as a display to Catherine II as she journeyed south. Possibly the term nevertheless says something about the priorities of the Tsardom, where pomp could trump durable infrastructure. Then, in the 1700s, the Polish kingdom collapsed. And its territories were taken over by the Habsburg Empire and Russia A smaller part of Ukraine, eastern Galicia, fell to Austria A new era had taken form For much of Ukraine, the 19th century meant absorption into Russia In 1794, Catherine II built the seaport of Odessa on the Black Sea, which grew quickly Agriculture spread, the steppes were ploughed into fields, and production skyrocketed. By the outbreak of the First World War, Ukraine accounted for 43% of the world's grain export. Its farmers could purchase land and become freeholders. In eastern Ukraine, industrialization benefited from the access to raw materials, often in collaboration with capitalists and foreign Western experts were enlisted. Railways were laid. Factories built, and mining communities flourished. In Western Ukraine, on the other hand, economic development was lagging. The 19th century was also a time of burgeoning nationalism, and a written Ukrainian language complete with a formal grammar took shape. During industrialization, even though growth was greater in Ukraine than in Russia, it still mainly served as a quasi-colony its economic growth fed by raw materials, iron, steel, grain, and other crops. While Ukraine became all the more dependent on Russian processed commodities, it was, perhaps paradoxically, also viewed as a land of future promise. Many Soviet leaders would come from families that had moved to Ukraine from Russia. Nikita Khrushchev's family settled in Yuzivka, Donetsk, the first secretary-to-be joining them at the age of 14 in 1908. A few years earlier, Leonid Brezhnev's father Ilya had moved to the Ukrainian steel-producing city of Komenska. Whereas industrialization was dominated by ethnic Russians, Jews, and Poles, the majority of Ukrainians were commonly farmers. But thanks to the fertility of their soil, Even though they were on a lower social rung than the city's central actors, they were better off here than in any other part of the Russian Empire. During the Russian Revolution of 1917, up until after the First World War, everything was rocked in its foundations, and all the rules in Europe were renegotiated. The dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary was carved up, and Ukraine quickly became embroiled in a larger Russian civil war. The years leading up to Soviet hegemony in 1922 were chaotic and constantly shifting, with the Ukraine bandied amongst the different foreign powers. Russia, Poland, Germany all made military and political overtures on Kiev. In Ukraine, two attempts were made to establish an independent state. The Central Council of Ukraine was formed in Kiev in March 1917 with widespread national support and in January the following year, the country's independence was proclaimed. This was soon followed by a Soviet invasion of eastern Ukraine. The Council reached out westward for a defense pact, and with the help of German troops, Kiev was occupied in March. A short while later, with Pavlo Skoropadsky heading a German puppet regime, a coalition regime, led by pro-reform Simon Petlura, was set up in late 1918. For two years, he tried to lead this ultimately moribund regime. In January 1919, the Russian Bolsheviks invaded Ukraine in an attempt to overthrow Petlura and secure the empire's supply of grain. But in the raging Russian civil war between the Whites and the Reds, Ukraine was initially able to mount a successful resistance to the attack with the aid of the Whites. On the third invasion attempt in December 1919, the Red Army expelled Petlura's forces from Kiev. Petlura then tried to establish a Ukrainian state from Lviv with the support of Poland, but by then much of Ukraine had formally become a political entity of its own under the dominion of Moscow. This epoch, with the slaughter of Poles, pogroms against the Jews, and widespread starvation, was tumultuous and depraved. In 1920, 60,000 opponents of the communist takeover were executed in Crimea. The political and military power play surged back and forth until December 1922, when the Soviet Union was formally proclaimed and Ukraine's years of independence came to an end. In 1923, Galicia was recognized as a region of Poland. Kharkiv became the first capital of Ukraine SSR. A hundred years ago, at the start of the 1920s, the cornerstones of the Ukrainian nation were therefore in place. Its role as Russia minor, a peripheral custodian of an East Slavic cultural heritage, was one key factor. A brow-beaten outland of the Polish kingdom was another. An alluring trophy for the sultan in Istanbul and its offshoot, the Crimean Khanate, was a third. In the centre of the landmass had been a kingdom where the Cossacks had planted the dream of an autonomous nation alongside the rivers. And then there was the dominant Orthodox Christianity, coexisting with its own ecclesiastical tradition of Greek Catholicism based on the Orthodox faith, but in full communion with Rome. In this turmoil of influences and the occasional onrush of tormentors, and with a formalised language of its own, the building blocks of a national narrative emerged. So, are Ukrainians Europeans? Yes. Russians? Preferably not. Scandinavian descendants? Hmm. Freedom loving Cossacks? Slavs? Sure. Hungarians, Austrians, Germans, Jews, Galicians, Ruthenians, Tatars? Partly. But why even try to cram the elucidation of a country's history into one chapter? For it would sure be foolish to believe that reasonable justice can be done to the multifaceted country of Ukraine in just a few pages. But this chapter should not be seen as a complete yet potted history of the country, but as a description of the key events that have influenced the population's understanding of itself. During the years as a Soviet Republic, However. An independent national identity with citizen rights was not to flourish here. The Ukraine of the 1930s had to endure some of the worst of humanity's abuses. The 1931-33 famine orchestrated by Stalin, and a few years later the dictator's purging of the intelligentsia. And then it was not long before Nazi Germany rolled into the country. Operation Barbarossa, in June 1941, was a surprise attack on Ukraine designed to secure raw materials, industries, and the food supply, to gather slaves, and to break the Soviet Union. At first, the invaders were welcomed as liberators by many Ukrainians who had suffered under Stalin. Yet again, Ukraine was the arena for a struggle between the great powers, Ukrainian cities were ravaged as brutally as the people were subjugated. The occupation lasted until 1944, when it became obvious that the project was the Nazi regime's greatest fiasco. One-sixth of the Ukrainian population, over 7 million people, were killed during the war. The history of Ukraine as a Soviet republic is, as a whole, as trivial as it is summarizable industrialization under oppression, decline, and national subjugation. The union based on the communist political system where all decisions, developments, and historiographies were controlled by the party leaders in Moscow. But scientific socialism failed to deliver a prosperous future. The Stalin and Khrushchev eras of the large-scale industrialization of a militarized repressive regime devolved in the 1960s into listless stagnation and military parades. The stability was paper-thin, and when the Soviet Union headed towards collapse, Ukraine was there playing a pivotal role. What was it, then, that brought the centrally-governed, ostensibly unshakable Soviet Union to its knees? Boredom and waning fear are one reason. Chernobyl played a part where nuclear power, that symbol of progress, confirmed post-disaster that the narrative was wrecked. After coming to power in 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev tried to breathe life into socialism with his principles of transparency, honesty and market reforms but in themselves they merely confirm the system's dysfunctionality and open the way for national movements. The explanation for the collapse that ultimately weighs the heaviest is, in spite of everything, the economy. During the build-up of heavy industry in the 1950s, the planned economy was at its most effective and delivered growth comparable to that of the United States. But come the 1970s, the economy had stagnated and in the following decade, with costs mounting for the war in Afghanistan and the arms race for the United States, tumbling oil prices, and later the monumental costs incurred by the Chernobyl disaster, the empire's economy was set for a nosedive and was woefully incapable of responding to the needs of the service society. At a time of ideological détente, and demilitarized presence, the fears of the common people and their respect for the system dissipated. When the rifle was lowered, people began to smirk, and the guards started to smirk back. Ukraine also played a seminal part in the dissolution of the Soviet Union. In 1989, the Soviets had had to release their grip on Eastern Europe's communist states, but Gorbachev wanted to establish a modernized union in a new treaty. A Soviet referendum was held in March 1991, but while three-quarters of the population gave their support to retaining the Union, it was boycotted by the three Baltic states, and Armenia, Moldavia and Georgia. The times had run out for Gorbachev. When Ukraine arranged a referendum on independence on the 1st of December 1991, 90 percent of the people voted in favor. Ukraine's new president, Leonid Kravchuk, refused to support a new union with the support of the vote. The leaders of Russia, Boris Yeltsin; Ukraine, Leonid Kravchuk; and Belarus, Stanislav Shushkevich, met at an estate in Viskuli, western Belarus, and on the eighth of December signed the document that sealed the dissolution of the USSR. Instead, the three core Soviet states formed the loosely affiliated Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS. Ukraine, then the world's third largest nuclear power, paid for independence with the dismantling of its nuclear arsenal. And so, Europe saw its greatest geopolitical transformation ultimately thanks to the Ukrainian referendum. Over the centuries, Ukraine had been traversed by belligerent empires that left mass murder, devastation and pillage in their wake. When Ukraine became independent, it happened without a coup, without a revolution, without bloodshed. It's enough to make you want to pinch yourself.